automation has the potential to eliminate rote jobs such as call center workers and truck drivers. The downstream effects of automation also leads to new jobs, such as data labeling and robot operations. The net effect of modern automation technology is unclear. Some jobs will be eliminated, and some jobs will be created. Some of these jobs we can't even anticipate today. So, the net effect of modern automation is totally unclear, but we know that it's going to cause some disruption in the job market. Universal Basic Income, or UBI, is an economic policy idea in which a government sends money to every person living in a country. The goal of UBI is to reduce the impact of dramatic changes in the economy that are resulting from accelerating technological change. Floyd Marinescu is the CEO of C4 Media, the company that produces the QCon conference and the InfoQ website for software engineers. Floyd has worked in the software industry for decades, and in recent years, he's become an advocate for basic income. He's a friend and supporter of Andrew Yang, a 2020 presidential candidate who is running on a platform centered around a basic income policy. Floyd joins the show for a discussion of the future and the potential positive and negative consequences of implementing a basic income. A quick note, we're looking for a content writer and an operations lead. If you are interested in either of these roles and you like the idea of working with Software Engineering Daily, which is just me and Erica, then send me an email. Jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd love to hear from you, and don't be shy. We definitely are looking to hire somebody, and we have no idea what the background of that person will be. So send us an email. Floyd Marinescu, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Awesome. Great. Glad to be here. I've been going to QCon for a long time, so we'll certainly talk about QCon and InfoQ and C4 Media a little bit later, but you have turned your focus to universal basic income and other political and social endeavors. To get into those subjects, let's start with talking about the economy. From your vantage point, you see all of this new software infrastructure. You see people presenting it at QCon, you see people writing about it on InfoQ, and you see the new companies that are built with that infrastructure. Describe how software is changing the economy. Okay. Well, there's many layers we can discuss that in. But first of all, I want to say before going into anything, is that innovation like creates human prosperity. You know, So what we do, creating more efficiencies with software, is saving people from drudge work. It is enabling new problems to be solved that can never be solved. It is creating wealth for a lot of people. Wealth doesn't only mean money in the hands of, of those who invest in companies. It also means products and services that work better for everyday human beings who can actually use these things. Like, you know, just the wealth of, of options and features and products that we can use that, that are life-changing in many cases. So software overall is like turbocharging the economy. It's making it more efficient. It's creating innovation. Innovation creates wealth. We should do more of it. And yeah, and I'll talk a bit later how there are two sides to that coin, you know, because there is this thing called the labor market and, and efficiencies can have other impacts that we haven't really been noticing until recently. But yeah, software is great. Software is eating the world, as uh, I think Tim O'Reilly said that. When I speak on QCon on stage, I say software is changing the world. It's just, I don't know, I just like that one better. And that's why InfoQ and QCon exists to human progress through technology is the purpose of InfoQ and QCon. 
human progress through technology. So we want more technology, but we need a counter balancing force to ensure that prosperity is shared. And that's where UBI comes in as one of many structural changes that, that I think we need. When the word automation gets used, it's often used to describe changes to the economy that have replaced jobs. It's talked abstractly about replacing jobs with quote-unquote automation. What parts of labor have been automated away? Let me answer a slightly different question that's connected to what you're saying. You've all heard of the Luddites, and we the Luddites were textile workers in the, I don't know, hundreds of years ago, whose jobs were displaced <laughs> with the invention of the spin, the loom, which allowed much more productivity on creating textiles. So what most people, when they laugh about the Luddites, they think the Luddites were these backwards people against technology, wanting to live in an agrarian lifestyle. That's actually not true at all. It's the wrong image. It's like that Star Trek episode where like, you know, they find those people on another planet who just wanted to live as farmers. They're like, what's wrong with these people? It's not that. The Luddites were actually highly skilled workers making middle-class incomes relative to the time who could no longer make middle-class incomes because the loom was invented, which created labor displacement. And now you needed far fewer workers to, with the loom to produce the same quantity of textiles. These are people who had to go from middle-class jobs to subsistence living, and they were pissed off. And that's why they were breaking the looms. Because they're like, my life is f That's the actual story of the Luddites. And that's a story that happened to 4 million manufacturing workers in the 2000s who were automated away, which Andrew Yang likes to say, that's the reason Trump was elected, because those people fell into, many of them fell into despair. Half of those 4 million never went back to work, and half of that half went on disability insurance. Imagine the shame. Like, you, you're a proud middle-class worker, and you have no other options in your town than to go on, middle, on disability. Not going to make any estimates of how many actually were disabled or not, but that's all they could find. In fact, they went on a basic income, right? So that's a solution that, that found itself through the form of disability insurance. And what happened to the other half? I don't know exactly what happened to the other half, but research, credible research has already shown that when careers are displaced, people end up taking lower income work than before, which was happened to, to the Luddites. And it happened to my father and uncle. They were in Ontario's automotive manufacturing sector. And when China entered the scene in the late 90s, the competition drove prices down so low that, according to my dad, who was a tool and die designer, self-employed, half of all the tool shops that he used to work for went out of business, and the other half that survived, they had to automate to stay competitive so they could lower their prices and be competitive with China. And research has shown that six times more jobs were lost to automation than trade. So all those people who had those jobs, like in the US, in Canada, wherever, they mostly had to take lower income work because when your job is displaced, it's not like you were fired, you just go apply somewhere else. Like you can't apply anywhere else because your job is no longer feasible. You spent a whole life building a skill set that is no longer valued by the market. It's been devalued either through trade or majority of times through automation. So what do you do? Well, my dad had to retire. Luckily, he was in his mid-50s at the time. He'd saved up enough. But my uncle was a lot younger. He had to become, I think he's a superintendent in a rental building right now, where he's not using a skill set whatsoever. Now we, you can see that a lot of people in their 40s and 50s become unemployable. Who's going to hire a 55-year-old with a high school degree? You know, so Anya Yang talks a lot about how automation is going to displace truck drivers. It's going to displace truck drivers. Now, there's actually been a, a study from Uber, funded by Uber, so take that for what it's worth, that actually says there'll be more trucking jobs, not less. Now, I actually 
think that's probably possible. But the question is, at what pay scale, what salaries will be those trucking jobs? Let me explain. So again, software and hardware creates prosperity, makes, reduces the cost of things, makes things easier, less drudge work. It also makes things easier for lower skilled people to do. So what economists are finding these days is that automation, for the most part, has actually led to more low-income jobs than high-income jobs. It's, it's decimating the middle class. And we're moving towards a two-tiered society where U.S. and Canada and U.K. and Western Europe will resemble something more like Brazil and India unless we implement something like a basic income because there will be very few middle-class jobs. So let's take it again as a, as a story. Basically, it happened to my dad and uncle. But let's look at truck drivers as an example, right? So you eliminate... Automation right now, we had people at QCon speak about, from Uber, talk about self-driving cars and trucks and what's going on. And it's very easy for self-driving technology to work on, on interstate highways, right? It's simple. So which trucking jobs pay the most? It's the ones that are the most tedious, you require the most skill, the people willing to do the, 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 the hardest work, which is the interstate jobs, right? You're going to pay someone to not sleep and do like 14-hour runs across the country that's a good middle-class salary. Those, a lot of those people are self-employed. They own their own trucks. So when those jobs go, you're going to see more trucking because trucking will become cheaper, which so transportation is generally an economic stimulus. There'll be, so that's a good thing. But the remaining jobs will be more the within the city trucking jobs. And guess what? There are way more people competing for those jobs than there are people competing for interstate, you know, like, like horrible sit, at your, sit on the chair for 14 hours and not be healthy type of trucking jobs. So if you have a labor market where there's more people now competing for the jobs in the cities, guess what? That's going to drive down wages, right? So even if there's more trucking jobs than before, we've actually seen historically looking at other industries is that even though automation, artificial intelligence creates more jobs than it displaces, it'll create more low-income jobs than middle-income jobs. So that's what's going to happen. You might have more trucking jobs than before, but there'll be lower-income work done by less skilled people who are very happy to have a trucking job in a city, like those UPS postal car drivers. I bet you if you can compare the salary of a... Wow, this is actually, this is actually a very good comparison. Compare the salary of a FedEx truck driver or UPS truck driver to an interstate truck driver. I haven't even looked at this at all. I just came up with this on the spot. I bet you it's like half. And that's what the future is for truck driving after self-driving. And that's what's happening industry after industry after industry. It could be a generational thing, though, because the generation that's growing up right now, most people learn how to use a computer. They learn how to type. If they don't learn how to type, they learn how to type on a cell phone. If they don't learn how to type on a cell phone, then learn how to use a voice interface. People everywhere are going to learn how to interact with computers. If you know how to interact with a computer, you have a much more durable set of skills. And it's not even a set of skills that you grow up expecting to be something that is something that gives you employment. You grow up using it like we grew up using a toaster. Mm -hmm. It's just an appliance that you use in your everyday communications and it's an e it has a set of easily transferable skills to knowledge work. Like people who grow up and have computer fluency, they have a much more durable set of skills than somebody who didn't grow up with computer fluency and is a truck driver. People who grew up with a computer today can be social media managers. They could be doing doing like analyst work. They could be working with spreadsheets. Do they could be doing uh, like scheduling podcast episodes on WordPress. There's all kinds of crazy knowledge work jobs. And if you don't believe me, you can go look at Upwork and just find a bajillion long tail like Twitch streamer assistant or something. Mm -hmm. And even beyond that, 
We've got the rise of data labeling jobs, which are not the most glamorous jobs, but they can pay the bills. And, and there's actually you know, a developing strata of different types of data labeling jobs. You have like almost white collar level data labeling jobs, maybe not that degree of, of, of salary, but you do have a tiered salary like there are because there are degrees of sophistication for data labeling. So I just say that to pose to you, perhaps the, although we should mourn the truck drivers and we should do something about it, I, I'm with you on a societal level. I'm, I want to make the case that perhaps this is a generational thing. Perhaps Truck drivers are an argument that we can stand up, but it's kind of a straw man because eventually these people are going to age out. I'm glad you pointed that out. So let's unpack that. There's, I would say there's two aspects to, to that very astute observation. So those whose jobs are displaced, it's not like they can just immediately go and reapply for something else. They need a runway. They need to preserve their dignity. There's a lot of suffering for those people who have lost their jobs. I mean, the rise of the opioid epidemics is linked directly in, and is correlated in those areas where most manufacturing jobs were lost. So a lot of suffering gets created. So a basic income is an answer to that. It's obviously basic. It's not like what they were making before, but at least they can keep it without having to ask for help, without having to go on some line and, and convince some bureaucrat that something's wrong with them and they need monetary support. At least they can, they can have a long-term perspective, which might allow them to go and retrain. I remember my dad telling me like, yeah, I'm too old to go and learn this, all the latest versions of CAD and all the new design things to do. But you know, luckily he had an STEG, so he could have made that decision. But if he was someone a few years younger, like my uncle, he needed money now. So he took what he could find and now he's a, a superintendent in a rental building. But if he could have not worked for a year, maybe he would have had time to retrain as whatever latest cutting edge thing to try and put himself up above the hundreds of thousands of others in his area that, that were competing for the same work. So there's a lot of suffering to your point of a generational change that, frankly, I think it's, it's mean and wrong and inhumane that we're ignoring it, especially when there's more than enough money going around that we could implement a basic income right now, and which would make the economy more efficient. It would make the economy bigger because the money goes back into the economy. It's, it stimulates market expansion. Like the way Andrew Yang's argument of do a VAT tax, I frame it as the market funding its own expansion because you're ensuring there's enough customers out there who are above basic needs so they can participate fully in the economy beyond even just being able to buy things, but being able to invest in taking risks like retraining or switching states or moving around or starting a business, which all those three things, by the way, are at historical lows. More businesses are closing than opening every year in the U.S., yeah, since 2008. And, and you believe that statistic? Yeah, well, it's, it's been verified. Like the, you can look into yourself. Less people are, switch, are moving locations for jobs. So the generational change, yes. Now let's look at the other half of that coin. You mentioned a lot of new jobs. Again, automation may disrupt the labor market even if it creates more jobs than it displaces because most of those jobs are lower income jobs. So you're replacing the middle class with a lot of low income jobs that have limited ladders, limited rungs in the ladder to move up into middle class and beyond. So only 8% of all jobs being offered today in the US are STEM. That doesn't leave a lot for the other 92%. What are they going to do? Just be podcast assistants and social media managers? You know how much that pays? I mean, you know how much it pays. Go up on Upwork. You see how much it pays. And guess what? Those people here who are trying to become social media managers and podcast assistants, they're competing with on Upwork with South America and Eastern Europe where people can charge three times less than they can. So in this case, software 
in the form of creating these marketplace SaaS platforms for jobs is further disrupting opportunities for local people uh, because you can hire people anywhere. And like, I remember myself looking for a podcast editor a few months ago, and I could pick the person here for 50 bucks an hour or the person in, in uh, Serbia for 15. I mean, the choice is obvious because it's the same work. It's actually not obvious because I started with the lowest market and I found that the quality was not great. And I found that there was actually a lot of subtlety that you need to communicate to the podcast editor. You wouldn't think that there would be that much, but there actually is a lot. And I ended up paying more for somebody that speaks fluent English and is more reliable. Yeah, well, that was your situation. But if you look at overall over the last 40 years, if you look at stuff we can get into soon, the the great decoupling, the shares of national income, how that's changing, what we're seeing is a 40-year pattern of disrupting of the middle class due to automation and globalization. And globalization is not just trade policies. It is automation-driven because you can't have a global supply chain for an iPhone if you don't have emails and you don't have, you know, like like geotracked tankers and all the things that, that currently enable such a sophisticated supply chain to cross, to cross planets for companies seeking the cheapest possible production method. That couldn't happen in the 60s, right? So people talk about trade and automation and blaming Mexico and China. Well, guess what? Technology is underlying that too. Otherwise, it'd all be built within the same town, the way things used to be done, where you have all your supply chain components in the same same area. And that's another thing that's disrupting manufacturing hubs is that, well, they don't need to be built there together anymore. You know, so it's just not needed. So, yeah, we see a 40-year pattern of decline in the middle class, of decline in earnings potential for most people. And much of that, those gains just going to the top, the top 1%, top 10%. And again, if 8% of jobs are STEM, then you got those 8% that are, and you have the top 1% of the investor class, and you basically have a two-tiered stratified society where you have, you know, the technocrats making great incomes at the top and the bottom 80-90% taking whatever is left as the middle class gets displaced. And that's what is happening. I mean, I agree with you to a certain extent that like, again, we should mourn the truck drivers. And those people are objectively not well equipped to retrain in many cases. They don't have technological aptitude. They don't even know how to type. They probably don't have great influences. You know, they're not listening to podcasts. They don't even know how to listen to a podcast. So they they don't have access to the right mindset. And I actually wonder how much of it does have to do with mindset? How much of it does have to do with culture? Like if you read, did you read Hillbilly Elegy? Uh, I read the first third of it and I want to continue. Okay. So like that book, I mean, you can take what you will away from it. My interpretation was that there is a really deep cultural problem in the United States. Like, almost as a byproduct of our success, you know, we developed this problematic pharmaceutical industry. We developed a whole lot of problematic cultural things that happen to be most acute in places like what gets written about in Hillbilly Elegy, the the Hillbilly Territory. That is not necessarily a problem that will be solved with the universal basic income, unfortunately. I think there are a lot of cases where people's lives could be alleviated by a universal basic income. The hillbillies of the world are not going to be alleviated by a universal basic income. Would you agree? I acknowledge those problems exist. There is something called a labor market. And if there's enough jobs out there that pay enough, eventually you can coax anyone to do it. But the problem is that jobs aren't paying enough. And yes, there is a displacement, a misalignment of where those jobs are. 
So even the top economists in the world are acknowledging that globalization, the gains from it have not been widely shared. So you have entire regions like the Appalachian regions that used to have local manufacturing hubs that are gone. So yes, there is a, is there a mindset issue? Of course. <laughs> You're not going to expect a lot of people to suddenly listen to Tim Ferriss' podcasts and like, you know, do mindset stuff. But there's not enough jobs around. You still need an opportunity. You need a ladder rung to grab onto. So I see... I think a basic income, I think not having a basic income furthers and perpetuates the problems that create and also perpetuate those mindset issues, which I think a lot of them come down to a lack of hope, right? When all you have around you is nothing, what hope do you have? And what risk can you take if, what do you do, pack up when you're poor, move to the city and in dreams of getting something, you might end up on the street. A basic income creates a base level of hope where you know you can take risks. Like I know from my example, of course, I'm, you might say I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur or whatever, but I had, I was part of a small startup in my early twenties and had some money that came out of some stock options. And I bought an income, rental income property in order to alleviate myself of the financial pressures of worrying about, you know, what would I, what if I starve one day? What if the whole software system collapses? Who knows that the absence of financial fear gave me such a long-term perspective. Let me dream again that I, I quit my job because there was a company that had bought the serverside.com. I didn't own it, but I was, I was uh, one of the creators of it. And I had, I had a smaller share in that training business. It enabled me to quit a pretty good situation to start InfoQ and QCon and C4 Media. And I don't think I would have done that at that time if I didn't have the rental income. I basically gave myself a basic income. And the psychological effects let me address my risk tolerance. I, could, I had a higher risk tolerance. Now, I would have started probably a couple years later because I would have saved up enough. But guess what? A couple years later was the 2008 crisis. I would have been crushed. So there'd be no QCon and InfoQ right now if I didn't have a basic income because of the rental property decision I made. So timing is everything. If you have an idea, if you're, I don't like using these terms. I don't know if you're someone who lives in those regions, you know, in Kentucky or something. And gosh, I don't want to be typecasting here. But if you're in an area where there's not much opportunity and you think, oh, I have an idea. You don't need the resources to pursue that idea. You need it now when you have that, that, that impulse because life is short. Time is passing. So a basic income will unlock people's risk tolerance and will enable hope. But those people won't even have the impulse because they don't have the inputs. I mean, I heard you on that other podcast, Amir, what is it, Amir and Explained or what, what's the name of his podcast? Um, uh, Amir Approved. Amir Approved, right. I, I enjoy that podcast. But one of the things you mentioned is... Before you purchased your rental property, assuming I have the timeline correct, you had read stuff like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and, you know, whatever, Think and Grow Rich, whatever the, you know, self-help or, you know, build your own small income stream du jour at the time. I mean, I've read those kinds of things myself. I'm not criticizing it. Like, I've read plenty of self-help and, you know, Robert Kiyosaki diatribes as the next person. And that stuff... I mean, I'm super bullish on self-help stuff I, and, and Tim Ferriss kind of stuff as well, because for me, the mindset is as important or perhaps more important than having the money. Without the mindset, you won't have the impulse. And that's kind of the case I'm trying to, I'm trying to make another counter argument here that like, if you give people a basic income, but you don't fix their tendency to opt out of the labor market and go play Fortnite all day, they're not going to opt into the labor market. They're not going to stop playing Fortnite. They're going to use that $1,000 for something dumb, like, or for buying, like, more suits in Fortnite, right? They're going to be like, sweet, 
like a grand more of dance moves in Fortnite. I seriously think that's where the money's going to go without the impulse, without the influence. So first of all, I love it. Keep it going. This is great. On compassionate grounds, I want to point out that you, that you said the word those people. So when there's an othering occurring, it's easy to frame people in a certain way because they're not like us, right? But in fact, surveys have been done that have shown that when you ask a bunch of people, would you stop working on a basic income? Like, I don't know, 20% say yes, although I don't think they, they know what it, what it actually means, a real basic income. But when they're asked, well, do you think other people stop working? Two thirds say yes. So there's a bias inherent in, in the human mind that thinks that those other people will do something bad with their time and money, which is just not true. And if we're all data-driven developers here, right? So there have already been over 16 studies, clinically tested studies of over 105,000 people who have received basic incomes in the last 50 years, and they showed no meaningful reduction in work. Some people stayed in high school a bit longer. There was a reduction on the second earner for example, a spouse who stays home with the kids, which is probably a good thing, but there was no meaningful reduction in work. So the data shows that you don't see reductions in work. And in fact, it shows an increase in work in cases of extreme poverty where people can fulfill their, can actually emancipate themselves. So let's talk about mindset. Because I find it, I definitely acknowledge we need education, we need mindset, of course, but basic needs first, then mindset. Because if you have no hope for something better, you're going to adopt the most self-defeating, hopeless mindset, most depressed way of life you can find. And I bet you some of those people are playing a lot of games. Maybe it's because there's just not enough good jobs around and they, maybe they don't want a bullshit job. Maybe all they can find is bullshit jobs who don't pay enough. So maybe if you give them $1,000 a month, those bullshit jobs will have to pay more or have to improve the culture and work environment to attract people. We blame people for not working. Why aren't we blaming businesses for not being good enough to work at? Well, but I mean... The jobs of the future for, not to other them, but these people, the jobs of the future for these people, it's going to begin on Fiverr and Upwork. These are going to be knowledge work jobs. They're going to be quote unquote low skill jobs. They're not actually low skill because an American podcast editor knows the colloquialisms. They know how to edit a podcast that's in English that's recorded in America much better than somebody in Poland. And so they are going to have a defensible salary, you know, whether they're charging $5 or $15 more than the person in Serbia. Assuming like, they had a chance to get enough work to get there, right? That they actually had a chance to underbid for a while to attract the bids and train themselves. Because we are no longer in the 60s where the mailroom clerk can work their way up to the president. Because we have this atomization of work through gig economy and subcontracting and all that, most people have lost those rungs on the ladder. They need a base to build off, to, to undercharge and build their skill set. Then take a loan. Who's going to give a loan to someone who has no money and actually is even in debt? Payday loan services. Okay, well, that's very optimistic, but I don't think it works that way. When I said 8% of all jobs are STEM, there's just not enough middle-class jobs. The system is trending towards a two-tiered stratified society. And that's the biggest problem we need to address. I mean, I know that talking point, but like the Twitch streamer assistants can make pretty good money. And there's a there's like a burgeoning market for Twitch streamer assistants. There's a burgeoning market for podcast editors. Like, I'm not saying this, I'm sure that this is going to fill the the drying up river of labor with enough water to, to sustain the hollowed out, quote unquote, middle class. But we don't know, 
right? We, we do don't... know because we have 40 years of the numbers trending in a certain direction. Well, what are we going to wait? It's not going to change next year or in the next 10 years. It's going to accelerate. And these are the numbers I'm most concerned about. If you look at a sh the share of national income that's going to the bottom half versus the top 1%, you see the share of national income in a steady and steady decline and the share going to the top 1% in a steady, steady increase. And all this happened changed in uh, around the mid-1970s. First, let me tell you why I'm scared, and then I'll tell you what happened in the 1970s. All right. Why I'm scared is that, again, since the mid-1970s, this has been trending in the wrong direction. The bottom half is getting increasingly less and less and less the national income made. The top 1% is getting more. If you just draw a line graph out a few decades, you're going to see the top 1% taking in 35 cents of every dollar made, and the bottom half getting six cents of every dollar made. That's not capitalism anymore. That's feudalism. That's pre-French Revolution stuff. And that's why you see billionaire investors like Nick Hanauer doing TED Talks say the pitchforks are coming. And Ray Dalio, another celebrated investor, saying that capitalism is not working for most people. And even the CEO of JP Morgan said we should do a basic income because capitalism is leaving most people behind. They see what's going on at a macro level. All your examples are micro levels. Oh, some person should read uh, Think and Grow Rich and become a podcast editor. But I'm talking about macro. The whole system is trending the wrong way. So that scares me because that's a future that either leads to a police state or leads to a communist revolution. And if we want to maintain freedom, we want to maintain all the things that make America great, we need to make sure that people have an access to the middle class. And I would argue that basic income is how we secure and expand the middle class for everyone. Because in the future, automation, AI will be doing more and more of the heavy lifting. And if we can share in the gains from that, everyone can have a middle class lifestyle. You're going to have still inequality. Inequality is fine. You need some inequality in society, but nobody needs to be poor. There's enough automation, enough wealth. And in fact, John Maynard Keynes, the economist whose ideas created the, the golden age of capitalism, said that by now we should all be working a 20-hour work week because there'd be so much technological productivity. Well, guess what? Maybe we could right now, except who can make that decision if they don't have any money or income? So maybe it's actually the inheritance of humanity. It's actually our due evolution to find a capitalist system right now that can install the plumbing to circulate the gains from technology and software and hardware such that half the country can choose to decrease their work hours and choose to have a better life because there's that much technological innovation. You know, the internet was paid by public financing. Zuckerberg didn't create the internet. He just made a website and had the right idea at the right time and found the right investors. You know, he has billions of dollars. Do you think it's fair that he should pay the same tax rates as a, a brick and mortar company retail in a small town, you know, that didn't use the internet and just, just getting by? Just, something's not right with the system right now. Technology, I argue in my TEDx talk, which should be out by the time this airs, technology is our shared inheritance. We are allowing the gains from technology, from all the inventors of the past, the gains to go to a very small number of people when the gains could be shared to some small extent to get us all above basic needs. And what a great society that would be. I'm sure a lot of the readers of this pod, listeners of the podcast love Star Trek, right? Well, the choice we have in front of us is Star Trek or Star Wars or Mad Max, if you're very pessimistic. What is Star Wars? Star Wars is an extrapolation of what we have today. You have wild, wild wealth inequality. You have people in poor circumstances fighting rich people's wars and getting involved in the empire's politics. What do you have in Star Wars? You have a giant middle class and you have some wealthy people, but people are above basic needs. They can pursue jobs of passion. They can pursue jobs of meaning because I fundamentally believe that every human being wants to be useful. 
I think at the end of the day, usefulness is a core human need. So even those people in, in the areas described in the book, Hillbilly Elegy, they want to be useful. Maybe they're playing games because there's nothing they can do of use that will can pay enough for them to get by and feel proud of what their work is. And that is a systemic problem with the region. It's not a problem with their mindset. It, it is as well, but the region itself is depressed. A basic income would be an investment in all these regions, allow people to expand their horizons because behavioral economics research has proven that when people are hungry and they have financial fears, IQ goes down by like 12 points, a standard deviation. In other words, if you're being chased by a grizzly bear, all you see is right in front of you. You can't look to a wider perspective in life. If we get people above that, that trap, then we'll see real innovation. We'll see people, I think, pursuing jobs of purpose, which may not all be market valued jobs, but that's okay. Maybe you need someone who will be happy on minimum wage doing something that they literally love because the basic income on the side makes enough that they can live well. That would be great. If, if technology has brought us this point of prosperity where people can choose really low income jobs that they love because they're subsidized by the basic income, or even jobs that don't pay. Maybe someone wants to be, a, I don't know, a tarot card reader on the side street. They're offering value and solving a problem that some people have or they wouldn't have clients. You know, So the market doesn't value that work, but hey, maybe the people on the street value it. So there's a lot of things that are valuable, like raising your children that doesn't pay or taking care of your, your parents that doesn't pay. There's a lot of non-market value jobs that would be unlocked with the basic income. So I think you would see a huge surgence of pride, of well-being, of useful, but not necessarily market pay, high paying jobs in these regions that currently have very little hope. I want to just close. I am a favor. I'm in favor of this idea. I think some of the arguments for it are really weak, especially the data-driven ones. Like, the macroeconomic trend, like the pitchforks are coming out kind of things, you know, the middle class is getting scooped out and we can say this because of macroeconomic data. This stuff I'm really suspicious of because macroeconomics is just doesn't work. Like It's hard. It's very hard to measure. Do we actually know how much labor is being created by the digital economy? Can we actually measure that? Do we have good measurement tools? Do we actually know that data labeling jobs are not good enough to resuscitate a middle class? We don't because we're in the early stages. We really don't know. All you really need to justify the universal basic income idea, it, from what I can tell, is like 10 to 15% of the population that is receiving the universal basic income getting 10x the value that you would expect from that kind of investment. It's almost like the venture capital model at a smaller level. Like venture capitalists aren't afraid of making investments in the wrong company. They're afraid of missing the investment in the big company. So if you think of it that way, like if you make a universal basic income sized investment in 100 people and one of them manages to use that money to like do online courses and make some breakthrough discovery in machine learning that is going to pay for the 99 other ones that's all you need to justify the universal basic income you do not need to go down the path of like truck drivers are losing their jobs or like anything like that. It's like a much simpler argument from my point of view. So I've been talking to this to a lot of people for a long time. And I love that that's your view because that, that is fundamentally an innovation oriented view. And you have a positive outlook. And I wish everyone thought that way. 
But I'm surprised when I talk to people who think the only reason we should do basic income is to save on government services and, and, and create more efficiency. I'm like, really? That's, that's why you think we need this? Because that is an argument. that You actually eliminate the welfare trap. You reduce the size of government. You know, government's good at writing checks, but you don't need a lot of people to do that. So you eliminate all the shame and all the bureaucracy around welfare. And people, to your point, can then choose. And you might have one in 20, as they say, VC investments grow. That's why Sam Altman, the Y Combinator president, is all for basic income. He calls it seed funding for the people. Perfect. So, so for you, that's the reason. For deep conservatives, it's like, let's eliminate bureaucracy and welfare right. state and, and, and ensure we have a quality of opportunity. Not a quality of outcome. That's communism. Quality of opportunity is we all have a chance to get ahead, and even people in depressed areas, like as you discussed in the hillbillyology. My personal view is I want to see us get to a Star Trek future where the system itself has the plumbing in place to be sustainable and allow people to pursue their passions. And more, more, but more importantly for me personally is allow people the absence of shame, the absence of, of being in an environment where they're unsafe, but they can't get out of it. And there's a lot of those environments, you know, it happened to in my own family. Like if my mom had a basic income, she could have left or she would have had more respect if my dad knew she had options. So freedom requires options. We celebrate freedom in this country, but if you have no options around you, you don't have freedom. So you can talk mindset all you want. If you're in the middle of the desert and you have a great mindset, you're not gonna find water. You know, you need water first, right? So, so you love the innovation argument. Other people love the efficiency argument. I love the freedom argument. And then Andrew Yang is, is scaring people with the automation argument because that seems to cut between left and right. But dishonestly, in, from, in my book, that's- I don't book, think it's that's... dishonest. His stats are correct. People haven't gotten displaced by self-driving trucks yet. That has not happened. I, I just told you 20 minutes ago, my father and uncle were displaced by automation and manufacturing. Four million jobs were displaced in manufacturing. Those people, half of them didn't work. The other half went on disability for, from who didn't work. That's real. It happened. Absolutely. And that's, that's terrible. That's tragic. And it's happening everywhere. Today is a different world than it was when your uncle and his dad and your dad lost their jobs. I mean, I'm not saying it's it's so different that we know that if your uncle and your dad lost their jobs today, they could get data labeling jobs that would be good enough. Probably they couldn't, but we don't know for sure. And that this is my problem with, with the statistical argument. Like, oh, we're go- we have X million truck drivers and yeah, these truck drivers well, are going to get displaced. It's just like dishonest. It, well, it is honest, but the context of the, ar- of the argument, is it's difficult to impart in such a statement the full context. The, the problem is you have Andrew Yang who who he is presenting himself as this very scientific person, which I love. He's like very scientific, very data-driven, but he's using dubious empirical statistical data from my point of view. That's what... I love the guy. I would vote for the guy in a heartbeat. But like it's... Okay, let me give you... Since you love the macronomic arguments, let me give you the ultimate one. And you can take it as, as you wish and to the readers. What motivated Yang, because I know this personally and also motivated me at a macro level, besides the whole share of national income thing, which we should all be really scared of, right? If we become a two-tiered society, I mentioned that one already. It's not a healthy society with the bottom half for making seven cents on every dollar. And that's where we're heading to in the next 20 years. But put that aside. Let's pretend that wasn't happening. There's something else that all developers need to know about. It's called the great decoupling. And it coincides with modern computing. That's why developers should feel responsible for this. If you look at post-World War II, productivity versus wages, they were going up in lockstep. They were going up together for 40 years. You had wages growing up almost 3% every year, and while productivity is going up. There, it was a happy marriage. So that was a time when 
with all the new productivity we created, you needed human beings in the production cycles of almost anything to produce things, which meant the labor market valued their time highly so that you were seeing wage growth that was very strong. And what happened around the mid-1970s, that, that become decoupled. Not a good decoupling like microservices, a very bad decoupling because wages stopped growing in the last 40 years and productivity continued to increase. So just look up the great decoupling, look at that graph, it's frightening because around the time when mainframes were already in mainstream adoption, around the time when, when personal computers were starting to hit the, the scene, before email were invented, suddenly you had thinking machines that could do the work of a lot of people. And at that moment, you saw wage growth stop. And as more and more inventions came in over the last 40 years, wage growth didn't recover. So my interpretation of that graph is that humans became less valuable in the production of, of almost anything since the mid-70s. Otherwise, if they're more valuable, wage growth would be increasing like it did before. But computing changed the game and robotics changed the game. And in the 1980s, you had fetish fantasies of manufacturing companies to implement something called blackout manufacturing, meaning that the factory has the lights off and it runs by itself. Well, they were trying really hard to displace work. And guess whose jobs they want to displace the most? Middle class jobs, because those are the salaries that are the highest they want to get rid of. So what we have seen in 40 years is a pattern of technology creating so much efficiency that, that human, the labor market is not increasing wages in a natural manner as it did. And you might think it's the demise of unions. Well, unions themselves are displaced by technology and globalization. They have no answer to that. So technology is at the root of all of it. As software developers, we should feel not responsible, but we're part of... We could be part of the solution, which case we should advocate for at least a basic income to install the plumbing to help share prosperity from the, our work, or we're part of the problem where we're actually continuing to displace jobs. I have so many issues with that. I'm like at Stack Overflow at this point. So I just <laughs> want to like totally change the subject at this point. All right. But I think we've given people a taste of why this is an interesting argument, at least, and, and why it does relate to software. It does relate to technology, which I'm glad we did because people are going to be wondering why there's an episode about basic income on the Software Engineering <laughs> Daily podcast when we haven't really touched on software engineering. InfoQ and QCon have been pretty influential in how I've built Software Engineering Daily and the way that I've structured the content, the way I've thought about content. So you know Robert Blumen pretty well, right? Yeah. yeah. So Robert Blumen, the creator of Software Engineering Radio, he's sort of the, like, he taught me to software podcast. And very early on, he, you know, I went to QCon with him and he was like, oh, like QCon is a great conference. And Robert goes to a lot of conferences. He's been to a lot of conferences. So I trust his judgment. And over the years, I really have seen the durability of the selection of content, the QCon content. And so I guess just to wrap up, give me a perspective for what makes good software engineering media content. What are the, ing I mean, you mentioned Tim O'Reilly earlier. I'm sure, I'm sure you've taken a page out of Tim O'Reilly's book to some degree, because he's built a gigantic software media empire. Tell me what are the ingredients for good software engineering media content? Hmm. Okay. The golden rule of editorial, as we speak about internally, is that this bit of content you're consuming, whether it's, a, it's something you're reading online or something you're seeing in person, should give you takeaway value whether or not you choose to, to take on those products. So that's the first thing. Like we don't want, nobody likes sales pitch. Nobody wants a bait and switch type of, of experience where you have to go buy something after. So that's the first thing. It has to be reusable. That's one of the guiding principles in InfoQ. Content you can trust is one of our editorial core values for InfoQ and QCon. But we understand our mission as human progress through technology. And the way we do that 
is by helping software development teams adopt new technologies and practices. And the way we do that is by looking at the technology adoption curve in the context of software engineering. And we, we map out all the various trends that are at various stages of adoption. And you can just see this on any QCon website. You, we have an adoption curve in the top half of the site. On InfoQ, we've been publishing what we call trend reports, where we look at, say, Java or, or programming. And we, we publish an adoption curve and we map out all the various uh, practices and frameworks and platforms on the adoption curve. So we just stay focused on, given our mission, human progress through technology, we stay focused on things that are early adopter stage and um, early majority stage and, and somewhat innovator stage. Because, you know, our readers, you know, we, we want to serve enterprise software developers. So we're not serving startups or not serving hobbyists. So they need something that is maybe a bit bleeding edge for the enterprise, as one of our attendees told us. It's bleeding edge if you're in an enterprise. It's not right. bleeding edge if you're working from home by yourself. You can take risks. So at InfoQ and QCon, we, we try and focus on what early adopters are doing, presented in their own words. So at QCon, one of our, another guiding editorial ethos is, is engineers over evangelists and practitioners over trainers and coaches. I don't like going to conferences and hearing from coaches and consultants. They all want to sell me something, right? So at QCon, you can be assured that every talk is actually by a peer engineer about what they've done, what worked and didn't work. And actually, it makes it more difficult to run our events that way because uh, most of the great speakers who work the circuit are working the circuit because they have a financial incentive. They're they're consultants or trainers or evangelists. So we actually avoid those people. I said those people, sorry. Those people are great. (laughs) (laughs) Playing Fortnite and evangelizing their (laughs) software and... I mean, they're wonderful, but I think that our readers and our attendees want to learn from each other. So we want peers presenting to peers. And that's kind of the secret sauce of InfoQ and QCon. Floyd, thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thank you. (laughs) 